0: This is Food on Point, a weekly podcast coming to you from Berlin that hits on the less circulated topics around food and the gastronomy industry. We sit down with leading thinkers and doers in the far reaches of politics, agriculture, tech, academia, hospitality, and even activism to ask the hard questions when it comes to the food that we grow, serve, and eat. theme this month is called The New Age of Agriculture, where we look at ways people are combating climate change, disrupting the destructive effects of conventional farming, or innovating new methods for a brighter food future for their community. This week, we're diving deep with author, architect, academic, and TED Talks presenter Caroline Steele. Her book Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, examines how humans have shaped our lands and our cities and how we can build our cities in the future to feed our ever-growing population symbiotically relying on our local farmlands. Caroline hardly needs an introduction because her wide-sweeping work speaks for itself, plus her warm, humorous, and wisdom-rich character precedes her. Here's Caroline in my interview, where you can hear for yourself the rich, vast, and profound nature of her work, and it will no doubt shift the way you view, buy, and eat food for the better. let's dive in. All over the internet you've written an incredible book called Hungry City but I'm wondering if you can just give me a little sum up maybe like one minute of sort of your thesis um, and kind of what you what your work is about you know why and sort of what you're exploring.
1: Sure I mean I'm an architect uh, by training and I used to teach urban design in architecture schools and The whole focus was on, you know, the buildings and the public space and, if you like, the physical fabric of the city. Um, And it always struck me that there was something missing from this discourse. Um, And to cut out a sort of 20-year-long story, um, (laughs) I I realised that what was really missing was just life actually <laughs> you know the way buildings were inhabited and so on and actually the fact that a city is a living organic thing you know it's not just a bunch of dead buildings um and so i had the idea of trying to describe a city through food um because it occurred to me that you know wherever there is food there is life and food would be an amazing way of trying to understand what a city really was as, if you like, a sort of living entity. Um, So for me, it sort of really came from a desire to bring more sort of lived discussion into the architectural discourse. Um, But within literally a week of having this idea, I realized that actually the question of how do you describe a city through food or how do you feed a city, which is what my question very quickly became, Mm is a bit like saying, what is civilization? Mm-hmm. So it's it's vast and all encompassing. Um, and I guess now what I really think of is, is food as this way of seeing a whole bunch of things, really big phenomena that are connected, but we don't necessarily realize are connected. Right. So food, food is this extraordinary, powerful element in our lives that shapes our bodies, our habits, our cities, our landscapes, our homes, you know, really everything. And, and I often say it's too big to see because it, its influence really is everywhere.
0: Right. And very quickly, um, by studying, I think, cities and city dwellers and also kind of just this phenomenon of how we all now pack into cities. And I mean, really actually just looking at population now in our modern era, you quickly start to see kind of scary things like the unsustainable reliance on food and agriculture resources yes. today. Yes. Yeah. So what exactly is contributing to that? <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I
1: think it's a million. I mean, it's and one really things. it's a very good question, but it's it's a huge question. And I think I mean what's interesting is that if you look at the history of of cities, if you look at the history of civilization literally, um, what you find is that for most of history, cities were very small um, and most people lived in the countryside. Why is that? Well, it's very, very difficult to feed a city. I mean, not only do you have to produce the food, but you've got to transport it long distances. And it's, you know, food Food is a living thing. It tends to go off, you know, if you transport it very far so the difficulty of feeding cities in the past limited the size to which they could grow, limited the places they could be. Um, the only way you could be bigger than a city of maybe, you know, maybe sort of 30, 40 thousand people in the in the pre-industrial era was to have access to the sea because it was much easier to bring the food in overseas, and that's what cities like London and Rome did. Um, but what's really interesting is that when the railways come along that constraint of geography suddenly disappears because the railways make it possible to transport food long distances very quickly. um, And so the food can stay fresh. And all of a sudden, you know, apparently the problem of feeding cities goes away. But actually, it doesn't go away. I mean, what, what in fact happens is we get much more efficient, in inverted commas, at exploiting natural resources in order to feed cities. So, for example, the American Midwest, which was an area of grassland um, inhabited by millions of bison, is transformed after the railways in the the space of less than 10 years, incredibly, Mm -hmm. into uh, croplands. Um, but actually, the soil was not designed or didn't evolve to have, you know, monocultural annual crops on it. So the soil very quickly became denuded. But and that's another story about unsustainability. Um, but it really was the, the era of the invention of cheap food because, you know, the, the grain, uh, for example, was then fed to cattle, which made it much cheaper to raise Uh, cattle cheaply food uh, meat was always a very expensive food in the past um and so we got this idea of cheap food cheap meat you know because we we didn't count the cost of what we were actually doing to the landscape Mm -hmm. so I I think you know the, the whole of the way through the late 19th and 20th centuries cities expanded massively you know networks evolved to feed them which were hidden from public view uh, all sorts of terrible things were going on I mean the land was being poisoned you know the as I say soil was being degraded the, the you know the the idea that that this that, that food um could be just produced very easily and very cheaply um is 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 sort of really what sort of the great urban, Uh, growth spurt was based on and i think what we're now beginning to see is the the effects of that you know the results of that um way of farming and it turns out that it's it's the reverse of sustainable and it's the reverse of cheap so it's very very interesting kind of evolution we've been through i think and and now you know it's very clear that actually feeding cities is fantastically difficult still Mm-hmm. Um, but we we externalize the true costs.
0: Yeah, I also feel like, especially since the 50s and 60s, and sort of the advent of um, suburbia, and um, which you have touched on, and then I feel like now, even in sort of our most modern contemporary era, um, people are going back out to the country and living in the country because it's just a nicer, you know, quality mm. of life. But then I also think of large areas, um, rural areas in the States, too, where there's almost this inverse problem where the city becomes sort of the place where change starts to happen or it's sort of the forward thinker in a way. And then these very rural areas are really the ones depending on packaged foods in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a, again, this is a huge generalization, but would you, have you noticed that? Also,
1: yes, I mean, I I, I think you know you raised several very important issues there. I mean, I mean one of the things that I like to do through food or, or or food allows you to do as a medium of thinking is to ask big questions such as you know, what what is a good life for a human, you know, what do we actually need and what implications? does leading a good life have for the way we inhabit landscape, for example? Um, And I often like to refer to Aristotle's term of political animals. You know, so Aristotle calls the human a political animal. and, And what he means by that is that we're social beings. In other words, we need to be with other humans in order to become you know ourselves effectively Mm -hmm. um but i love the fact that the term is political animal (laughs) and the animal side of us actually means that we need contact with nature in the natural world Uh, and of course nature if you like is where our food comes from and actually there's lots and lots of studies now that are sort of reaffirming what we sort of knew anecdotally already which is that we feel better when we're close to nature um not to put too fine a point on it. So you then have this kind of, if you like to think of a landscape um, and and sort of almost imagine it like a board game, you know, how as humans are we going to inhabit the landscape? We have a dilemma because we want to be close together in order to have all the advantages of that. And a city is obviously what results out of our need to be together mm-hmm. you know and we we create culture we create civilization poetry art fantastic buildings you know the pinnacle of society of civilization comes from that phenomenon mm-hmm. but the more we cluster together in order to be together the further and further away we get from nature and from our sources of sustenance so there's a tension there mm-hmm. and i call this the urban paradox you know the urban paradox is that Although we're drawn to cities for all the reasons that you mentioned, you know, that, that we were smarter when we're together, you know, we can do more. Um, we actually need nature as well. And, and there's no ideal solution to this because, you know, if you like, at the one end of the spectrum, you've got mega cities like Tokyo with 30 million people living in them. And at the other end, you've got sort of living in nature, which is obviously where we all came from as hunter gatherers and so on. And neither of those is an ideal solution to our problem. So it seems to me that it would be, as it were, logical in a way to start looking at sort of solutions somewhere in the middle. You know, in other words, cities that are big enough to allow you to, you know, in have a symphony orchestra, for example, but which also don't completely exclude nature. You know, so, I mean, I think suburbia is a very interesting phenomenon in that, you know, I mean, its low density doesn't really achieve either of its stated aims, in my view. Um, but I think we we should work with suburbia because there's a heck of a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, now. <laughs> um, yeah, and actually sort of making, you know, if you like, intensifying parts of it to give more of a sort of the possibility of what, you know, what cities themselves really do offer. And then actually making making it more productive as well um so there's a lot of i mean one of the ironies of, of urban development in general is that cities are always built in fertile areas because you know again historically if you were going to found a city you had to make darn sure you could feed it first Mm. and that meant building in the most fertile possible areas which is why many of the great cities in the world for example are on river deltas
0: right
1: but of course as the city expands it's building over the 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 good farmland right you know so that that's a problem right yeah (laughs) so if you like it's a kind of geometrical problem which is to do with how we as political animals dwell on the land. And that's the dilemma in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. And then you bring up the term that I think you invented, but Cytopia. Yes. Um, Just if you, again, this can be found all over, but if you want to just quickly describe this notion and, and sort of why, like where did that come from?
1: Yes, I mean, actually, again, it's a very interesting question sort of leading on from what we were just talking about. So, I mean, for me, one of the most interesting uh, models for, you know, trying to answer the question of how humans should dwell on land is the garden city. Um, And the garden city basically is a proposal to limit the size to which cities grow and to surround them with productive farmland. Um, And I was researching that idea and many other sort of similar ideas um all of which are if you like utopian in other words they all try to come up with an ideal solution to the problem of how we should live um and a lot of them talk a lot about food and a lot of them try to solve this problem of you know how do you feed an urban society and so on Mm -hmm. um and then i was reading i think it was a thomas more's utopia which is actually a very similar idea thomas more's utopia which was written in the 16th century, was a kind of critique of London. He thought London was getting too big and too powerful. And he imagined this fantasy island where there were a series of self-sufficient city-states networked together. Um, And it was actually in the introduction to that book that I read that the word utopia uh, was a word that Thomas More deliberately invented as a kind of joke. And it can either mean a good place uh, from the Greek word eu, which means good, topia, which means place, or no place from the Greek word spelt ou, ou, topos. Mm. So utopia is a good place, but it's no place. In other words, it's ideal, but it can't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember feeling really depressed by this because I thought, <laughs> well, you know, uh, I mean, utopia in a way is our our best, longest, strongest tradition of trying to think in a multidisciplinary way about the problem of how we should live. And if it can't exist, we're screwed. You know, that's really bad news. Um, But I thought, well, you know, all of these utopian thinkers, it's really interesting, they do talk endlessly about food. But they don't really put food at the forefront of their thinking, you know, it's sort of they, they talk about communal meals all they talk about everyone should farm. I mean, if, for instance, in Thomas More's Utopia, everybody was a farmer, you know, so the, the food's very present, but it's never the thing. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, how would it be if we actually made food the thing, you know, and actually said, we live in a world shaped by food and how are we then going to use food as a way of thinking about how we should live and how we should shape the world better. And I, I actually rang up a couple of friends of mine. One of They're both very um, august ancient Greek scholars. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, if, if you were an ancient Greek and you wanted a word that meant food world, you know, what would you actually call it? And they said, well, the Greek word for food is sitos s-i-t-o-s um so it would be something like sitos topos but they said well that sounds ridiculous so a greek probably would never have <laughs> invented such a crazy sounding word so they probably would have just called it something like sitopia and i said oh well you know could i have
0: could Can i have could that? i use sitopia
1: <laughs> and they said yeah no that's probably cool so i you know i got got the blessing of a modern day ancient greek as it were yeah um and I very, very hesitantly put forward this word because the whole idea of, of Zootopia is that it is a multidisciplinary way of thinking about the world and how we live and how we inhabit space, but it's it's already exists. We already live in a Zootopia, just a very bad one, mm-hmm. because we haven't consciously shaped it through food. And in fact, we don't value food. We think food should be cheap. So by definition, we live in a bad Zootopia. But, but actually, Cytopia is a practical tool, because if you do value food and you do start to shape a better Cytopia, actually, you can do all the things that y- the Utopians were talking about. Yeah. So an ideal Cytopia is Utopia. Mm-hmm. So if you like, Cytopia is a kind of a working, practical version of Utopia.
0: <laughs> and thank you for finding that. We need that practical side of it. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And with that said, um, the Garden City um, concept, though, I mean, can that work in a modern day? I mean, can that work? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, what's really, really fascinating to me, and I mean, you know, you you see these kinds of ideas evolve and go around the world and be reimagined and so on. But I mean, if you look at what's happening in China now, I mean, China, as you know, for the last 20, 30 years has had a a major policy, you know, by the government to urbanize the population. And they've moved literally hundreds of millions of people out of the countryside into cities. They're now starting to see the problems with that. And to my amazement, I discovered recently that actually the Chinese are now exploring almost the identical same idea as the Garden City, they're trying to put urban centres back in the countryside to encourage people to go back and live in the countryside again, which is precisely what Ebenezer Howard was doing with his Garden City. I mean, he, you know, it was actually in response to the fact that there was an agricultural depression um, when, you know, in the sort of late 19th century in Britain, caused, in fact, by the Chicago, the cheap grain from Chicago, which is precisely what I was talking about earlier on. Um, And London was... Full of uh, rural migrants who are out of work and just living in appalling slum conditions, and he said, you know, we just need to generate work, and we need to get people back into the countryside again. You know, people need urbanity and rurality. You know, he really saw that, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and the idea was to create new urban centres in the countryside that would provide, you know, all the the kind of uh, facilities of urbanity. Um, and encourage people to go and live there again, and create these kind of these self uh, self sustaining communities, really in the countryside. So, so the point I'm trying to make is that you know, the, it, it, not only is it potentially relevant for modern life, it's happening
0: right.
1: in, in places like China, and you know, the the government in Britain also actually announced plans to create some new garden cities about two or three years ago. Um, But they don't really understand what garden cities are. (laughs) So they're not really doing it properly. Um, Surprise, surprise. Yeah, Um, buzzwords. You know, but they're just really commuter towns, whereas the whole idea of the garden city was that it would have enough scale and density to actually operate as a semi-independent community.
0: Mm -hmm. Which in and of itself, I mean, that is the definition basically of sustainability, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So... Kind of in a nutshell or more tangibly, basically, the aim is to have the urban city or urban wasteland sort of symbiotically connected with its own land. Yes. Sort of the easiest definition. But what needs to happen politically as well as socially to kind of get this in place today
1: um, well, I think, you know, it, it's it's important to say that um, I don't think there can ever be completely self-sufficient communities. You know, I think the idea is to move towards more local, more seasonal, more symbiotic, you know, more connected and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually what you're up against is a kind of uh, a global system now, which is extremely powerful. I mean, you know, again, I think the sort of it's very interesting to trace the history Um, of how you know the industrialization of the food system which came with the railways as I was mentioning earlier I mean two other key things happened I mean I mentioned one thing I mentioned that cities started to grow exponentially the other two things that I should have mentioned is that historically um, the food supply was actually controlled by city authorities and in fact it was always seen as their most important uh, role, was to control the food supply. And for that reason, the trade of food was always conducted visibly, sort of out in a market, and it was actually illegal to trade food elsewhere. You know, so you have a food system that was in the centre of the city, controlled by the authorities and visible. Mm. And what happens when you move to uh, an industrial system is that all of those things disappear one by one. So the first thing is as I say, cities grow very rapidly, so it's no longer possible to have all food being traded from just one central open space. So you get the deregularization of 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 food trade. Secondly, food becomes invisible because it had been in the market and now it goes into specialized Uh, food distribution networks that are effectively invisible and I don't know about you but I mean if you've ever tried to get into a supermarket regional distribution center (laughs) it's a bit like trying to get into a military base I mean they are absolutely secretive there is no way you can get into these places and last and very much not least politicians who always hated having to control the food supply because basically it's a thankless task a because you can't control it and b because people don't like being told what to eat um they they lost they deliberately gave uh gave the authority to the new food industries to take control of food so they, they politically they lost control um and so all the phenomena that we're dealing with now um include a fantastically uh, bonkers uh, uh, global system where, for example, because of economic constraints, you know, you can have um, real-life situations like prawns, fresh prawns being fished on the Scottish coast in Britain, being flown to Thailand to be shelled, Mm. and then being flown back to be packaged. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, this kind of insanity, which is to do with economic logic. You have fantastic consolidation in the food system. So consolidation is basically uh, very, very few players owning the whole process. You know, so, for example, I mean, I'm sure you know these kinds of statistics, but, you know, there are three major traders of grain who controlled 90% of global grain trade. There are three meat packers who, in the United States who control 90% of meat production, etc. Mm-hmm. They're very, very powerful. And last but not least, as I say, these are companies, a lot of them have, you know, annual profits bigger than most na- national GDPs. <laughs> yeah. You know, so how? what are we going to do? Um, And, you know, there is a monopoly or, if you like, a sort of a a very, very highly monopolised food system and politicians don't have control. Um, What are we going to do? And, uh, you know, I think what's very interesting, you know, what I think the food movement represents. I mean, the food movement is really a global movement that includes everything from sort of, you know, small-scale peasant farmers demanding land rights all the way through to, you know, Californian kind of beautiful people deciding that they're going to go vegan, you know, and kind of everything in between. There's this sort of uh, revolt against the food system and the embedded power that it represents and mm-hmm. an attempt to go to a plan B. And And very often what it really explicitly involves is embedding power in the people again, you know so you either join the producer directly to the consumer with something like a an organic box scheme, or you have you know community-supported agriculture, which is people living in cities actually going to farmers and saying, I'm gonna pay you directly to grow my food for me, you know, all these and, and a billion of other models, which essentially try to you know circumvent this fantastically, you know. I, I always say it's a bit like the trunk of a tree. If you imagine that you know, producers and farmers are the roots of the tree and the consumers are the branches. The trunk is the only thing that connects the roots to the branches. And the trunk is, if you like, big ag, you know, and and the consolidated power of the food system, the big supermarkets and Nestle and Coca-Cola and all of these huge players. So if you don't want them to have power, and actually, by the way, this is something that was historically always very well understood, control of food is power, Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to think very long to realise why that's true. Um, you know, if we want a democratic food system, which, by the way, is a necessary prerequisite to having democracy at all, uh, then it can't look like a tree. You know, it can't yeah. look like a, a sort of monopolistic system. So, so what you know, and obviously government legislation would help, but governments are very reluctant to act because they... They're terrified of admitting that they don't control the food system and that that they've completely lost the plot. Uh, And also they know that they actually have no real power. You know, they rely on the supermarkets to feed people. Right. Very reluctant to interfere with what the supermarkets do.
0: Right. Or they are kind of in bed with the big ag people.
1: Totally in bed. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Sharing a duvet. Yeah. Totally. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: another thing that's really happened. And by the way, before this gets too depressing, I do want to say (laughs) that there is loads we can do. And the whole thing about food is that, you know, every decision that you make about what you eat makes a physical real difference. So eat differently. Don't give your, you know, your food dollar or pound to uh, or euro to um, to the wrong people. Right. You know, support your local producers, you know, sort of support your local independent shopkeepers, you know, your local restaurants, you know, good food. I mean, you know, eat well. Eating well means eating good food. Good food is food that was produced without slavery, without despoiling a landscape, without, you know, reducing biodiversity, etc. Right. You know, and you have to get much more political and aware about the way you eat. But I mean, it it's very powerful when that happens Uh, you know and i mean i think we're seeing it with with for example the rise of veganism in britain at the moment i mean we have half a million vegans in this country now which is off the scale crazy (laughs) um but but, you know a lot of i mean and it's been driven by different things and I, i don't by the way necessarily think that all the reasons are good ones but um it is partly opting out of the industrial meat system, you know, right. so it's partly a political act. And I think, you know, things will change, even the big players will change if we stop buying their rotten products. Conditions in many cheap meat processing plants isn't, frankly, much better than it was 100 years ago. So I think, you know, the the, the invisibility of these production systems is a real issue. And of course, You know, if I'm struggling to feed my family and I'm busy and I'm hassled and everything, you know, getting all concerned about where my meat pie came from isn't necessarily going to be the top of my agenda. Right. You know, and I do understand that. Of course, I understand that. But I think there is a sort of we have a social responsibility, which means it's a political responsibility to to have a basic minimum standard, which is ethical, and ecologically sustainable, and doesn't treat humans like slaves, and doesn't torture animals, uh, and that would mean a really, really big shift in the food system. Right. I mean, cheap food shouldn't exist. It does. It doesn't exist. It cannot exist. You know, I often say, food is living things that we we kill in order to live. So it it it's precious. It's sacred. You know, treating it as cheap is like treating life as cheap. It's completely unacceptable right so if you have a society based on cheap food you have a bad society and and the argument is often made oh well if food was more expensive people wouldn't be able to afford it well isn't that the problem isn't the problem that you have people in a society who are so poor that they can't afford to eat well right you know so don't make the tail wag the dog you know the dog is inequality Yeah. And poverty. And we have to address that. That's the don't make that an excuse Mm -hmm. to to allow food to be, you know, a a destructive force.
0: But then the one thing I do keep thinking about over and over in this conversation is just like sheer population growth. I mean, yeah, what are we going to do? And also all. Yeah, I guess I just keep thinking about really this notion of sort of our hinterlands supporting the cities, so the direct hinterland of the cities, supporting the city mm. um, within it. Mm. But I also think, like you know, are we going to even have space anymore to be able to have that hinterland to support these cities?
1: Mm. Mm. I mean, really, really important question. Again, of course, um, I mean, yes, there are uh, too many people on the planet. That is absolutely true. Um, by the way, I do think uh, we could support this number of people leading good lives but then you would have to sign up to my idea of a good life um and my idea of a good life is not one where you basically upgrade your iphone every two years you know (laughs) so you know so we i mean there are several very very important linked points that you, you know we have to consider here the first is the population growth it is catastrophic it's It's arguably the biggest problem we face at the moment. Um, and it's a lot of it is to do with a, a sort of evolutionary curve that all populations go through um, from you know sort of early development and agriculture and so on uh, through to, if you like, a sort of highly evolved post post-industrial society like ours. And what we know is that when people have basic life security, you know, basic means of income, access to healthcare, education, etc. The population growth falls off the cliff, you know, to the extent that actually in the EU now, our main problem is under, under growth of population. Right. So what we have to Really address globally, I believe, and I, and I think one of the things that a lot of these issues lead you to eventually realise is that we need much more powerful systems of global governance. In the West, we need to stop consuming, <laughs> and go to a much more circular economy. And there's many, many, very, very respected, powerful economic voices who are agreeing with this now. Uh, and in the rest of the world, we actually need people to reach a basic level of stability and, and security. And, and then the population will naturally fall off. Now, the problem we face is that if everybody follows, if you like, the Western model of development, and everybody wants, as I say, their kind of petrol fueled car and their kind of constantly renewed iPhone then the planet we we will we will simply have an absolute catastrophe as a species so in my view what we need as a matter of absolute urgency is a new vision of a good life that doesn't as I say involve this kind of highly consumerist, it has to be said sort of capitalist mindset of constant economic growth being the you know the equivalent of, of of a good life
0: right
1: this then brings us back to the question of as i was saying earlier what does a landscape for human flourishing look like um i actually believe i mean these, these are such sort of enormous topics but and i'm really skating over great areas very quickly but <laughs> we actually need to go back to a, a more making and mending society. And I think in order to live well in that kind of society, we do need people to have more access to nature. A lot more people returning to the land, a lot more people working in farming. Yeah. So this, this by implication, if you revalue food, if you internalise the true cost of food, that all of a sudden makes organic, local, artisanal, seasonal... Uh, seem like the very very good bargain that in fact it really is we can feed the world this way I mean it's it's very very uh, normal for the people with vested interests in big ag to say that we cannot feed the world organically it's absolute bullshit but it is true to say that we can't live like we do now and feed the world organically mm-hmm. because if we're going to feed the world organically but as it turns out there's lots and lots of people who actually want to work in food but they can't because we don't we don't pay enough for food to allow them to work in food right but then i'm wondering also what
0: about areas that can't provide um, sort of this hinterland um, city center symbiosis so for instance with issues like growing seasons or you mm. know poor soil for um, proper agriculture or yes. even space or funding or resources and even some of this I even recall area like in my mind I'm thinking of even areas in maybe the third world as well in terms of not even having the yeah, the funding or resources to do things like this? Yes,
1: well, that- I mean, obviously, you know, to, uh, at a certain point your a certain... Chunks of land where we simply shouldn't be living. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, if you can't feed yourself somewhere, then then we do have to ask the question: Why are you living there? Right. Um, but then also you know,
0: seasons, and I'm kind of thinking as well of super short abilities to grow. I mean, of course there are greenhouses and things, but um, yeah.
1: Keep well, going. I mean, of course, you know, if you're talking about, for example, desert countries, you know, who wh- where they exist because you know they have something that the rest of the world needs, aka oil. You know the obviously Obviously, those those societies have existed on trade. And mm-hmm. I'm not against trade, but I am for maximizing, uh, shall we say, local seasonal. Actually, ironically, that's one of the few places where vertical farming makes incredible sense, i.e., vertical farming or you know, greenhouse, I mean seawater greenhouse technology, the kind of technology that uses sun, sun power to convert seawater into fresh water that that can then be used to grow crops. Mm-hmm. Um that kind of technology makes a huge amount of sense in desert regions or region you know coastal desert regions shall I say which is what a lot of these countries actually are. But but you, let's actually sort of look at what it makes sense to import and right. pay proper money for by the way mm-hmm. and what actually we should be growing ourselves right and also changing the way that we eat yeah that's to exactly match what exactly. the landscape can produce I mean we've got to get smarter about this and sort of let you know let the way we eat sort of allow the landscape to evolve in a way that just you know is good for us and good for the planet to use the cliche but I mean it's it's all the solutions are there waiting to be done right and, and all our thinking and all our economic models are preventing us from just doing it. And also our, our habits, you know, our eating habits. Yes, but,
0: yep. So then what do we start doing? I mean, what are we going to do about it? And well,
1: how do we start? <laughs> I mean, I, I think a major thing we all need to start doing is is stop eating industrially produced meat. I don't believe, that. I, I think actually good meat does have a place in the food system. And especially if we're going to be farming organically, actually it, it you know animals play a very important role in in organic farming um but you know we need meat that's raised ethically and killed well that has a good life and a good death that makes meat a luxury um there are very very many um sub i mean because of this rise of veganism as i say i mean it's becoming easier and easier to eat well um and not eat meat uh, there's lots of options there um Try to channel your food pound towards the good. And you you can decide what the good is for yourself. Uh, Individually, there's a huge amount we can do. But I do understand that if you're struggling to feed your family, then that is not something that's necessarily within your control. Or if you live in a food desert. So we need political action. There must be political action. Politicians can't just... Turn a blind eye to the food system anymore until we adjust, as I say, as a society, until society becomes more equal, so that even those at the bottom of society can still afford to eat well. Right. So just think of food, think of every mouthful of food you put in your in your mouth as something that's going to affect, you know, is a political act to eat, it's an economic act to eat. And it's also our greatest universal daily opportunity for joy and pleasure Um, and go for it. You know, eating well is just the the most rewarding win-win thing you can possibly do.
0: Do you want to sponsor or partner with Food on Point? We'd love to collaborate with you write us an email at hello at foodonpointpodcast.com. This episode is co-produced by Madeline McLean and Stephanie Rotenhofer and was recorded in Berlin's Noise Fabric, a multi-purpose and co-working space dedicated to the audio and creative industries. For more information, visit them at noisefabric.com and let them know that we sent you. We love hearing from you, and let's keep the conversation going on these vast topics. You can find us on Instagram at Food on Point or on Twitter at Food on Point One.